0: This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, science, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And our own Alex Cortez loves to bring us powerful stories about human freedom and the absence of it. And here's his latest.
1: Peter Wolf grew up in the wake of World War II in Germany. In what was then a divided country, the Western nations of Britain, America, and France oversaw West Germany, and the Soviet Union oversaw the East, where Peter was.
2: I enjoyed bicycling, and I found this old bicycle that I fixed up. I took that bike one time pretty far out in the country and you were not allowed to travel too far away from your home without proper paperwork. So all of a sudden this car pulled up, a bunch of Russian soldiers in it, and they interrogated me where I was going. And I said, well, I was just going for a ride. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to and that I needed to go back home. And they followed me. So this was my first encounter where police and soldiers stopped me from doing something that I enjoyed doing. And then later on, they told my mother that I had gone too far. My mother scolded me in front of them, but privately she said, look, don't get these soldiers or the police upset. It's it, You don't want to upset them. And I didn't quite understand all of that. I was maybe 11 years old at the time. So it was very confusing to me why we were being so confined. In school, we were always told that Germany was a German democratic republic, that we were free to vote, free to do anything we wanted to. Of course, I would go with my mother to vote. And the process was, There was a man sitting on a desk and my mother would lean over on that desk and she would put her signature next to the person that she wanted to vote for. And she told me that if she put the signature for the other person, who was not the favorite candidate, that the man in front of the desk would of course see that and make a mark in another book. And that was the book where you don't want to be in there because you would be ostracized and punished wherever possible, since everything was controlled by the government, everything. So they had total control. You were allowed to vote, and you could choose which way you wanted to vote. But if you chose wrong, then you would be punished for it. And people were very much afraid all the time. So I was getting these conflicting dialogues, one at school, one at home. And you like to believe your parents, but of course you spend an awful lot of time at school, and you really didn't know. You simply did not know what was true and what was not. It was very conflicting.
1: Peter's parents knew that they wanted to illegally escape to West Germany and then to America. But young Peter wasn't sure he was conflicted.
2: We had relatives in America and we had some pictures that we saw that they had mailed to us. And we saw America as something that was absolutely unbelievable. The fact that you could own a car, drive a car, you didn't have to have paperwork to go from one state to another. It was just unreal. And of course, in school, we were told that people were very oppressed in that country. It was mandatory for us to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a book written about America By an American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and that book portrays black Americans as living in squalor, and this is exactly what we were taught America was all about. Anything else we saw about America was fake propaganda, and that's what we believed.
1: For the Soviets to use the sin of slavery to downplay their killing of at least 13 million of their own citizens is pretty rich. Meanwhile, Peter Wolf's family was about to become pretty poor.
2: We had saved up a lot of money carefully so that we could use that money to bribe our way into the West. In order for the government to keep people back in East Germany, one day the government decided to negate all the savings that people had by simply changing the currency. They didn't tell anyone about it. You had a certain amount of time, one day, to transfer your money in the bank to a new currency which looked different. But if you had too much money that you had hoarded or saved up, the government, since you were not a good communist by having so much money, uh, declared it worthless. And we never really took it. Nobody took it to the bank if they had more than they were supposed to have. So we had a few hundred marks perhaps uh, in the bank that was converted and the rest was lost. That money became worthless. And at that point, our family was very distraught over it.
1: Peter's dad was so distraught that he ended his life.
2: And that was a very traumatic experience.
0: And when we come back, more of the Wolf's family story and what a story it is, not told enough here in this country in our schools, but told here on our American stories we This is Our American Stories, and we return to Peter Wolf's story. His family is hoping to escape Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany and escape to the West and the Free West. This is before they put up the Berlin Wall, but it was still harrowing.
2: If all three of us would have left, it would have caused too much suspicion. I was left behind at some neighbors and my mother took my sister and worked herself towards the West German border. They were caught and they were detained for a night at a soldier barracks. Now Here was my mother and my 15-year-old sister. In the morning, they were let go and told to go back to East Germany. Instead, my mother went for a ways and then made a U-turn and snuck into the forest trying to get across the border. At that point, the soldiers saw them again and started shooting after them. So they were actually running, the two of them, across the border with soldiers shooting at them, but they made it across and my mother stayed in West Germany for about a week and eventually left my sister in West Germany with hopes that she would make her way over to America. She was 15 years old. She left her with some friends and said her goodbyes and came back. And when she came back, my mother was interrogated by the local police for several days by the Stasi asked why my sister didn't come back. And my mother simply said that she didn't want to come back. And at that point, my mother was ostracized as a traitor. She was given different work assignments that were much more difficult. It was made very clear to her that my prospects would not include high school. I would have to go to work at some factory as an apprentice. A mark was put in her passport that would prevent her from going anywhere near the border, anywhere closer to 20 kilometers, because of course people thought that she might want to escape as well. It was made very, very clear to her that she would be put in prison Many people that we knew who had tried that would actually go to the gulags in Russia, be transferred into Siberia, and never be heard of again. The children that were left behind were often put into orphanages and then properly raised by the communist government. So that would have been my fate if my mother were caught anywhere near the border. She had to get rid of that mark in her passport but she didn't know what the mark was. So one day she spilled some ink on the passport. And then she said, oh no, how terrible. And she would hold the passport underneath the water trying to get rid of the ink. And she would put this thing on in front of me and I didn't know any different. And she would pour the water over the passport and of course the passport got all wet at that point. So she turned the gas burner on and trying to dry up the passport after it got all wet. Well, lo and behold, the passport caught fire and some of the pages burned up. Well, this was all very carefully orchestrated because she wanted to uh, burn up the pages that had the mark in there. She knew that some of those pages had the mark, but she just didn't know what it was or where it was. It was a weekend, and the local police station was already closed, where you would normally get a new passport. We would go to the larger city nearby, Leipzig, and there she went into the police station and asked for another passport because it was close to Christmas time and she wanted to travel to a relative somewhere else in East Germany. Of course, the police officer said, Sure, lady, no problem. Just go to your local police station and they'll do it they'll give you a new passport." And she said, no, 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 there's no time, and I need to go there in the next few days. And the police said, men said, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, at that point, my mother had a tantrum. She just started wailing and crying and shouting, and I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but the policeman got all crazy about it, and my mother got crazy about it, and he called one of his superiors over, and finally, after my mother wouldn't budge, the superior said, look, let's, let's just process her a temporary passport until she can next week go and get her normal passport from her local police station. So they processed a temporary passport, and the intent was for my mother to get that from that distant police station since they didn't really know her and wouldn't put that mark in that the local police station would surely put back in. So she ended up getting it. My mother had really orchestrated this very carefully. I was completely in the dark. I thought all of this was real. And the reason she did that was to shield me from maybe divulging if they asked me what was going on. And this was, of course, about four years after my sister had escaped. I remember very clearly Christmas Eve, I was playing with my friends downstairs, it was winter time, and I came up for lunch. And as I came up for lunch, in the bedroom on the bed was a small suitcase all packed up. And I was curious as to what that suitcase was all about. My mother had made me some lunch, and she said, now Peter, I want you to be very careful what you say to your friends, but I want you to say goodbye to them after lunch. Go back downstairs and say goodbye. Tonight, we're leaving. I said, leaving? We're leaving our home. We're going, hopefully, to meet up with your sister. And she asked me also to put a toy. She said, pick your favorite toy and put it in the suitcase. I had a little electric train, train set, and I put that in there. Uh, I went back downstairs, said goodbye to my friends, didn't tell anyone anything of our plans. My mother had purchased a Christmas tree She had decorated the Christmas tree so from the outside it looked as if we were celebrating Christmas as usual. And this was to avoid any suspicion with the neighbors. So in the evening, she took me and the little suitcase and we walked about two blocks to the local streetcar. We took the streetcar from our little town to the nearer, larger town, and there we boarded a train to Berlin. In Berlin, we got off the train and quickly went to a subway. In the subway, we bought a ticket that took us from East Berlin, where we were, to another section in East Berlin. But there was one stop that the subway would make in west. Berlin. The intent was to get off there, but our ticket was actually took us back into the eastern sector. Now, my mother, I didn't appreciate all of this, but my mother was taking a huge gamble by getting on that subway. If the identification in her passport included the mark She was obviously closer than 20 kilometers from the border now, and she would have been arrested. So when we got on the subway, it was a moment of no return for her. I I just can't even imagine what what she committed to. But she did, and we got into the subway, and there were a few other people in there. Train started moving. Pretty soon, the train got to the station Just before the West Berlin station, when the doors opened, Russian soldiers came on, one in the front, one in the back with machine guns, and an officer would walk in and interrogate various people for their paperwork.
0: And what a scene Peter Wolf is setting up. His story, a story of Soviet totalitarianism, and totalitarianism of all sorts, it's still around us everywhere in this world peter wolf's story continues here on our american stories Turn to the story of Peter Wolf's escape and his family's escape from East Germany and Soviet-controlled East Germany with his mom. They're now on a train making their escape and suddenly Russian soldiers appear on board.
2: There was a couple that sat in front of us and the Russian sergeant asked for their paperwork, looked through it, found it to be okay and started walking towards us. At that point, the couple gave a big sigh of relief, and they smiled at each other. The Russian sergeant in Russian mumbled, well, I wonder what they're smiling about. And of course, he mumbled it in Russian, but I understood what he was saying. And he was looking at me, and he realized that I understood what he was saying. And he said, Baruski, do you speak Russian? I said, da. And at that point, my mother, who was holding my hand, started to squeeze my hand. Because she told me not to say a word to anyone. And here this Russian sergeant started talking to me. And he said to me in Russian, I wonder why these people are so happy and smiling. And I responded in Russian, I don't know. My mother didn't speak Russian, so she didn't know what I was saying, and here I was talking to the guy that was gonna interrogate us. She was pale. The Russian soldier said, well, we better find out what they're so happy about, and he motioned to one of his soldiers, and they came and escorted the couple out. They never came back. At that point, he took the paperwork that my mother had, and he continued to talk to me in Russian. I told him about a pen pal I had in Moscow. And he complimented me on how well I spoke Russian. And he looked through the paperwork, eventually gave it back to my mother, and moved on. Of course, we didn't sigh. I knew that much. He went on and interrogated some other people. And eventually, the Russian soldier left. The doors closed. The train started moving again stopped at the next stop, which was West Berlin. Doors opened. Just before they closed, my mother grabbed the little suitcase, grabbed me, and we snuck out the door. Doors closed. Here we were in West Berlin. We made it. My mother asked the local policeman where to go to directed us to go to a uh, fugitive camp. And when we got there, there were hundreds if not thousands of people, all with a little suitcase. Uh, Many of them holding on to their children, having the same intention that we had. There were so many, in fact, that there wasn't enough room in the fugitive camp. We were put on a bus and taken to an old factory. There were about a hundred bunk beds in a big room. And here it was Christmas Eve, there were children crying, mothers consoling their children. The men usually were snoring like crazy. And I remember crying myself to sleep because it was Christmas Eve and I didn't get any presents. (laughs) And I felt pretty sorry for myself. Every day, the heads of household would have to go from the old factory to the fugitive camp in a bus. After they handled their paperwork there in order to process their immigration to West Germany, in the evening, the bus would come back and people would be reunited usually it was the husband that would leave and then in the evening come back my mother would also be on that bus all the time so it was just her and I. one day one of those bus drivers apparently was paid off by the east germans and instead of taking the entire load of the bus to the fugitive camp they went back to east germany and soldiers and police were waiting for them. We found out that all those heads of households had been recaptured. It was probably one of the most anguishing experiences I have ever experienced. The mothers and children left behind, they didn't know what to do. They had given up everything, and now what should they do? Several of them had befriended other families, and they gave their older children to those other families to take to the West. And the mother and the younger children would go back to the East. Who knows what would happen to them? The love that the wives had for their husbands, even though their life in East Germany would be miserable, they still knew that they wanted to be with them instead of just leaving them behind. And to leave your oldest child with strangers, hoping for the best for them, knowing that you would probably never see them again. And I still have pr- trouble understanding how those people dealt with that. We had legal documentation to immigrate to America, and we bought a one-way ticket on the MS Berlin, which was one of the last immigrant boats to leave from Germany to New York. It was a 10-day journey. We probably had the bunk in the lowest compartment way down in the bowels of the boat. And on the ninth day, the captain told us that if we wanted to get up early in the morning, we may be able to see the Statue of Liberty as we came into New York. And I probably got up at two or three in the morning and tiptoed up on the top of the boat. And there was not a sound up there, No one was up there, it was foggy, it was misty, just a real serene environment. Tiptoed up and I was trying to work my way towards the front of the boat and hung on to various railings when all of a sudden I bumped into someone. And then I bumped into someone else and I didn't think anybody was up there. And as I got closer to the front of the boat, I realized that instead of me being one of the first people to be up there, I was probably one of the last people. Hundreds of people were pressed against the railing, straining their eyes, wanting to see that Statue of Liberty. It represents hope, freedom, and liberty to all these immigrants. Hardly any of them spoke the same language. And I kind of squeezed myself up to the railing. And sure enough, as the mist slowly raised, first you could see the light of the Statue of Liberty and then the statue itself. Not a sound, people were completely quiet. Every time I tell the story, I get very emotional about it.
0: And Peter Wolf was one of the reasons why the Berlin Wall went up. More accurately, he was one of the millions of reasons why up to four million people escaped the communist East to the free West until the Soviets finally said enough and built that wall. When we come back, the rest of Peter Wolf's remarkable journey to his new home. American stories and we're back with the final portion of Peter Wolf's story. His family had escaped Soviet-controlled East Germany and now they had made their way to, of all places, Chicago.
2: My sister set up an apartment in a community that was about 95% Jewish. And here, this was in the 1960s, not many years after the Second World War, this German family moves in, and I didn't understand, but most of the kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. But it wasn't until some time later when the teacher came to me and she said, Peter, we're going to be looking at a movie today about Germany, and if you don't want to watch that movie, it's okay, and I said, why wouldn't I want to watch it? And she said, well, it shows some bad things that the German people did, and I said, it wasn't me, and she said, okay, you can stay if you want, and I stayed, and the movie started playing,
1: I visited Buchenwald Concentration Camp
2: and all of a sudden the scene showed these emaciated people in concentration camps and German soldiers I didn't know what to do I, I had no comprehension and the movie depicted that these were mostly Jewish people in concentration camps by the Germans.
1: Do believe me when I tell you that the reality was indescribably worse than these pictures.
2: And all of a sudden, I understood (laughs) that my classmates Mm -hmm. were from Jewish families. Many of them perhaps had lost loved ones in that environment. I had never been taught that before. My mother never talked about it. School in Germany was never talked about. I was so distraught that I simply got up and ran out of the school, and I think I stayed home for about two weeks. I, I just couldn't face these kids anymore. I, I felt so bad. After about a week or two, Leon Stern came to my apartment and said, Peter, uh, we want you to come back. I said, well, how could you? Look what my people did. And uh, he was very kind. I remember he invited me that evening to his house. And his parents were very, very kind to me and accepted me. Later on, I found out that they, too, had lost loved ones in Germany. But I felt accepted, and I went back to school. And many of the children there then, I think they must have been taught by some of the teachers that it wasn't me that did those things. But many of the children came and uh, befriended me. I was invited to their parties. And as a matter of fact, Leon and one particular other fellow, Joe Kaufman, became one of my best friends. I was very anxious to be naturalized. I wanted to be a citizen of America. I embraced America. I wanted to speak English very well. I wanted to be an American. I wanted to do everything American. I had passed my exam, received my naturalization. I took my oath and when I returned, from the naturalization office, Leon greeted me at my school, and he said, hey, let's celebrate a little bit. Let's go and have lunch together. So we went to the lunchroom, and lo and behold, when I opened the door, I think the whole school was there. All the classes were let out to celebrate that I became a naturalized citizen. Again, you know, this is a 95% Jewish school. And they all rallied around me that I became a naturalized citizen. A few years ago, I was on a plane ride when I sat next to Michael Reagan, President Reagan's son. It blew my mind. And he explained how he was going to go back to Germany on November 9th, 2009 to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down and he was going to dedicate a room of paraphernalia from President Reagan to the museum over there at Checkpoint Charlie. I said, interesting you should mention Berlin because 50 years ago this year I escaped through Berlin." come to America his jaw sort of hung open and he said really I don't think he believed me but I told him yes and I told him I would send him some material and I did and a week later he called me and he said Peter I want you to be part of a delegation to go back to Germany this November and be there when I dedicate the room in the Checkpoint Charlie Museum My son, 29-year-old son and I, we got a plane ticket and we went back to Germany. This was the first time I went back in 50 years to East Germany. My mother always told me never to write to anyone in East Germany out of fear that they would get in trouble. So I lost all contact with my friends, my relatives, everyone. I visited the fugitive camp that we went to when we escaped, and it was still there. They made a museum out of it. And my son didn't understand that my emotions were very tender when I walked in there because it was just like 50 years had gone by at a blink of an eye. And there's a little statue in front of the fugitive camp of a little bronze suitcase, because that is the thing that was common to all those fugitives. We uh, also traveled to my hometown. And on the last day in Germany, we were there about 10 days. By coincidence, I touched base with somebody at my hometown who knew somebody that I went to school with. On the tenth day I called up that lady and she said, Yes, I got his number here, call it. So I did. And it was Gunto Tida. And I remember it when I called it, and I said, This is Peter Peito Boy." And I think he was jumping up and down. He he just I could tell on his voice that he must have been jumping up and down for joy to hear my voice. So he said, Peter if you can, we have a dinner tonight and most of your classmates will be there. Can you come? I said, of course, I'll be there. And we all met. And what a reunion it was. Mm -hmm. Gunder Tittel mentioned to me that they've been meeting almost every year as a class reunion. And he showed me the pamphlet from the previous year. And he said, now Peter, don't get upset when you look at this. And I said, well, why should I get upset? And I thumbed through it, and at the very end, it said, in memorandum, Peter Wolf." In other words, I had died. And I said, what's this? And he said, two years after you left, the communists had told us that you and your sister died in a car accident. And that was to prevent any of us trying to reach out and maybe help escape. And I sort of understood at that point why they all wanted to meet me, of course, to see the ghost of Peter Wolf. (laughs) At the very end, I asked uh, one of them, I said, what was it like to live in East Germany all these years? And the table became very quiet. No one said a word until one person spoke up and he said, Peter, You would have had to live here to know what it was like. And then he said, Peter, what was it like to live in America? What do you tell someone what freedom is like? You can't put it into words. So all I could muster was to say, you would have had to live there to know what it was like.
0: And a great job, as always, Alex, and great job on the production by Robbie. And thanks to Peter Wolf, and thanks to the VictimsofCommunism.org. That's where we got the piece from, VictimsofCommunism.org, and you can hear so many other stories there. And by the way, Peter does speeches for them all around the country. Imagine hearing this man and this story at your school. Again, go to victimsofcommunism.org. And when people talk about places like Cuba, places where you cannot escape, places where there are walls that you can't get out of, well, we're talking about a prison camp at this point, folks. And that's what East Germany was. It was a prison camp long before the wall even went up. And when it came down, well, what a story that was. Peter Wolf's story, and in a way... So many refugees of that time, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And now it's time for a brief look into the history of air conditioning.
3: Here's Jesse. One of the single greatest inventions in modern history is the air conditioner. Americans spend more than $22 billion a year on electricity to cool their homes with air conditioning, an average of $2,200 per household. It's hard to imagine how people lived without it. Ancient Egyptians cooled themselves at night by sleeping in wet sheets. Early Americans placed large blocks of ice in front of fans. Willis Carrier invented modern air conditioning in 1902 for a publishing company in New York that was experiencing problems when humidity caused ink to smudge and paper to expand. The New York Stock Exchange Building in New York City was one of the first buildings to use air conditioning in 1903. But it wasn't until 1904 when the first private home was equipped with an air conditioner in Minneapolis. Movie theaters were among the first businesses to install air conditioning. In 1922, Carrier installed his system in a movie theater, which advertised its new system by saying that the theaters were, quote, cool as a mountaintop. Yes, you lucky people, just sit back for a moment, relax, and notice the delightfully clean, cool, and refreshing
1: atmosphere of this scientifically air-conditioned theater. Great, isn't it? Remember, you can enjoy great motion picture entertainment all
2: summer long in cool comfort at this theater. In
3: 1939... Packard became the first automobile manufacturer to offer air conditioning in its cars. But it would be decades before AC became commonplace in homes across the country. Here's historian Gary Mormino.
4: Air conditioning had had existed in in, in the larger cities since the 1920s. Uh, You could go to the premier movie theater and enjoy air-conditioned comfort, but it was unaffordable and really unrealistic for a homeowner to even dream about air conditioning. The carrier window unit came in 1951. And uh, what's interesting is it wasn't an immediate hit. For instance, uh, everyone I think assumes that everyone went out and bought a window unit in in the summer of 1951. It was much slower than that. First of all, it was very expensive. Most homes were were modestly priced. It made no sense to purchase a $1,000 unit for a $6,000 house. Uh, the, the first census to ask home o- owners whether they had air conditioning was 1960. And in 1960, only one home in five was air conditioning, but, but the future was lock set. Uh, almost all the new developments included air conditioning and, and uh, central air conditioning. Climate control was the future for growth. Uh, this, the, we, we live in air-conditioned cocoons from homes to cars to movie theaters to schools to workplaces. Uh, air conditioning uh, is omnipresent now. In Hollywood, Florida, a neighbor's newly installed air conditioner rattled all night, and his neighbor took him to court. And the judge ruled, you might as well get used to it. This is kind of like the Model T. It's, it's the wave of the future. And it's one of those new sounds introduced after World War II and you know, the war of the, uh, of the air conditioner. Air conditioning has also created a 12-month tourist industry. Before air conditioning, many beach communities opened only a few months a year. The grand hotels in the 1930s, the Royal Palm, the Breakers, the Don Cesar, they generally only operated in the winter months for three or four months. Uh, clothes for the season would be the sign in, uh, in, in summer.
5: Oh, this hot summer has got me down. You can fry an egg on the street. Heat waves are wiggling on the sidewalk. Cops are dropping like flies on the beat. I need a new loafer to take me in, protect me, bro. I'm this humid air. But you Brooklyn, Staten Island, or queens, I don't care. Don't matter what kind of loving you're into or how big your apartment might be. All you need an air conditioner, another man for me.
3: Without air conditioning, we wouldn't have certain medications today. Some medications could only be studied and developed in a cool environment. Kids can thank air conditioning for summer vacation. Before air conditioners, it was too hot to learn during the summer, so the kids were granted a break, and the idea stayed. This lucky baby will sleep quietly through the night. Yes, no matter how high the temperature goes outdoors, this baby's RCA air conditioner will keep his room filled with cool, dry, fresh air and keep that room so comfortable and quiet, he'll never need a middle-of-the-night lullaby. Yes, quiet is the word for this new 1954 RCA air conditioner, as the wonderful heart-of-cold compressor silently cools the air for you. Without air conditioning, life would be a lot harder. Not only would we be uncomfortable, we'd be fighting for our very survival. According to a recent study, heat-related deaths have declined 80% since 1960. This can be directly attributed to widespread adoption of residential air conditioning.
5: Harry. Ah. You sleep.
3: Who can sleep in this heat?
5: Think you could open the window a little wider?
2: So we can let some more hot air in? When you're
3: trying to beat the heat we think you'd have better luck with the kelvinator speedy mount air conditioner on your side even the cold water's hot according to the national academy of engineering air conditioning and refrigeration is the 10th most important achievement of the 20th century if you're sitting in an air-conditioned room or car right now take the time to appreciate everything ac has given us comfort productivity health cities and much more Air conditioning makes us more productive and allows us to live longer, happier, cleaner, and more comfortable lives. And don't risk a breakdown during the hottest days of the year. Keep your artificial oasis going by remembering to schedule a professional AC maintenance every spring and calling a professional technician as soon as you notice a problem. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: You're as cold as ice! And great job as always to Jesse. And you know, you just forget. There was a time, 1903, the first building to use AC, the New York Stock Exchange, the first car, the Packard, in 1939. And in 1960, only one in five homes had AC. Hard to imagine. The story of air conditioning, the history of air conditioning, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and today we have Steve Rosidiak's story entitled For Better or Worse. Originally published in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Married Life, which can be found and bought on Amazon.com, Stephen recounts the night he sat with his wife and opened up about a difficult subject, infertility. Here's the story. I'm sorry,
6: was what I had wanted to say. Too bad I lacked the nerve to say it. Two little words. That's all they were. But if I had the courage to say them, they would only open the door to more words. Many more. An inevitable conversation would result if my thoughts were given a voice. And to be honest, talking about it was something I'd been trying to avoid. And so we sat out on our deck in silence, watching the intermittent bursts of lightning in the distant nighttime skies. The muffled rumbles of thunder that followed gave fair warning of the coming storm. The symbolism suggested by its approach wasn't lost on me as I thought about all we'd been through lately, especially the infertility. I wondered if she thought about it as much as me, and if so, what was she thinking? A part of me wanted to know, but fearing what she might say, or worse yet, how she might react. I was curious enough to wonder, but cautious enough not to ask. In truth, my silence sustained my sense of security, but it was merely postponing the inevitable. I knew that sooner or later, she was going to want to talk about it. And when she does, my fragile defenses will most certainly crumble, especially if she becomes emotional. Should that happen, we're going to have another problem, perhaps a bigger one. I am not going to be able to comfort or console her. No reassuring words from me will be forthcoming. The truth is, they can't, and this is a shame because she deserves better than this, and maybe she deserves better than me. I blame infertility as the sole obstacle that's come between the way we've been living and the idyllic life that we'd planned. After marriage, we saved money and bought a house. Renovations followed, and so too did a new puppy. When the work was done, and our house had become our home, it was time to begin filling the freshly painted bedrooms with babies. But it didn't turn out that way. We did come close to achieving our goals, but without children, living that 1950s sitcom life that I'd envisioned while growing up watching reruns of shows such as Ozzie and Harriet, or Father Knows Best, just wasn't happening. In the end, even our puppy wasn't enough to provide me with that sense of family that TV dad Ozzie Nelson must have felt when he came home at the end of the day to Harriet David, and Ricky. The storm was getting closer. I knew we should talk, but my fears demanded otherwise. They did, however, provoke an unexpected memory. I was at camp, a young scout, standing on the edge of the dock, waiting for the signal to enter the cold, dark, and frightening waters for my swimmer's test. Not being very good at camp aquatics, I knew that I would have to push aside my fears, take a deep breath, and jump in. So many years have passed since then, but once again, I found myself standing on the edge, knowing what I had to do, knowing that it was almost time to jump back into the frightening waters. A brilliant flash crossed the sky and was immediately followed by the sounds of rolling thunder and then silence. The air became still, the calm before the storm, another fitting metaphor. I closed my eyes, gathered my thoughts, and then, finally, allowed them a voice. Choking back my fears, I took a deep breath and jumped in. I began by saying how frustrated I'd become with everything having to do with infertility. I'd grown weary of living by the dictates of the calendar, thermometers, and early morning temperature taking, of charts and graphs that predetermine the optimum time and date to make a baby, and then our failures to do so. I was sick of doctor visits and waiting rooms. I wanted to be like any other dad Playing catch with his son, or the proud pop walking his daughter down the aisle on her wedding day. I had my fill of friends asking when we were going to start having kids, and family members wondering if a new niece or nephew, cousin, or grandchild would be making an appearance anytime soon. I was tired of wanting children, waiting for it to happen, and knowing it may never. I mentioned medical alternatives. I questioned God's wisdom. And then, I went for broke. I asked her to tell me how she really felt about all this. Without holding back. Without sparing my feelings. Without the sugarcoating. And then, I was done. I exhaled, and I shut up. She didn't say a word. I prayed for a flash of lightning, a clap of thunder, anything to break the silence. I blew it, and I knew it. I never should have said all that I had, and now I waited to suffer the consequences for being a horrible spouse. And then, I remembered the one thing that I had wanted to say, but have forgotten to mention. This time, it didn't require taking a deep breath or any courage to say those two little words that I've been carrying around in my heart for far too long. I'm sorry. And then, I added something that we both already knew. It's all my fault. And of course, it was. Whereas she was physically ready and able to become a participant in the adventures of parenting, apparently, I wasn't, and therein was my dilemma. If our failures to conceive a child caused her sadness, how could I be the supportive husband, the comforting partner that she might need and certainly ought to have, when after all, I was the cause of her unhappiness? when I was the reason that she has never received a card on Mother's Day. Her expression was disarming, comforting, reassuring. Her smile immediately told me what she was thinking, but I knew she was going to tell me anyway. Sometimes you can be so stupid, was what she said. The problem, she added, isn't yours, and it isn't mine. It's ours, and no matter what happens, it happens to us, for better or worse. I knew she meant it, too, for better or worse. Part of our wedding vows, suddenly they took on a whole new meaning, providing the comfort that I worried I couldn't give, but now I needed far more to receive. And that was it. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I most loved in the world. And nothing else, as it turned out, mattered more than that. The storm that had been slow in arriving suddenly dissipated, becoming little more than a gentle summer night's rain. It was impossible to foresee the future, No way of knowing if we would ever conceive a child. And yet, I felt a comforting reassurance in knowing that no matter what life held in store for us, we would face it together. As partners, as friends, and as man and wife. For better or worse.
0: And great job on that faith and thanks to Stephen Rosediak for his candor. And for his honesty, and that's what we do here on this show, we tell you the stories that you want to hear and need to hear. Again, no screaming and yelling on this show, uh, just stories from the heart. And this is a tough one for any man, for any woman. And it can ruin marriages. I've seen it happen, and we all know it. We've known people in our lives who've gone through this. Sex turned into a job. Intimacy destroyed. Blame well enough to go around everywhere. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I'm most loved in the world. And that's what happens when you open yourself up to someone you love. At least that's what can. Stephen Rossettiak's story, and thanks to the folks in Chicken Soup for the Soul, and this came from Chicken Soup for the Soul Married Life, and thanks to them for this partnership. Stephen Rossettiak's story, so many married couples suffering from this thing called infertility. Here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and every now and then we love listening to a really great speech. Today we have a pastor, speaker, author named T.D. Jakes talking about leadership at an event in Dallas. Here's a speech he gave entitled, Learn from the Lows, How to Handle the Highs. Here's
5: T.D. Jakes. I want to talk to you about change, and the one thing that you can count on is there will always be change. And if you don't plan on the change as a leader, that will determine how successful you are, whether it is good change or bad change, there will always be change, and generally there will be both. But you learn as much from your failures as you do from your successes. I think one of the most difficult things that can happen to people in leadership is to step into leadership that you didn't grow and that you didn't groom because you don't know where the issues are. There's something about being on the trajectory yourself and taking the roller coaster ride and riding the wave that makes a big difference as it relates to leadership. When you, when you think about it, think about it this way. We, we often, when we select leaders, or we want to evaluate people, or we want to choose staff, we quickly want to know about their IQ, where they went to school, what their background is, because we weren't, we're trying to find out in a nice way, are you smart? We want to know about your IQ, your intellectual ability, the quotient of intellectualism that you have through which to handle and many situations based on your IQ. The second thing that we really need to be asking, and we really don't know this until we get into it, is your EQ. <laughs> and I'm not talking about something you do on your music. I'm talking about your emotional quotient your range of emotion and how you handle stress and pressure because many many times you can have people on your team and on your side who have the intellectual ability to do what you're trying to get them to do but they do not have the emotional wherewithal and you don't know it till you get on the ride it's like me i mean i look like a a a man's man you know I, i think i look like a fairly strong macho guy and i am until you put me on a ride on Six Flags? <laughs> I mean, I turned into a little five-year-old girl in the ride, I, I'm good going up, it's the going down that drives me crazy. What you wanna know is can you handle the down ride? Do you turn into somebody else when, the, when, when things start getting crazy? Do you have the emotional maturity, the EQ, emotional quotient, to go through the highs and the lows of what it takes to be successful. Because if you're going to be successful you learn from the lows how to ride on the highs. So if you can't take the dip, you can't take the climb. You have to have the emotional wherewithal to go on the journey and to be comfortable and to remain cool in a crisis. Not lose your head, not freak out, even though you want to. You can do it on the inside. You can be like a screaming year old, six-year-old girl on the inside. But on the outside, you have to maintain your cool. Because there is nothing as frightening as a frightened leader. It's scary. I don't know anything about flying a plane, but this is how I evaluate the trouble on the plane. I've gotten used to the turbulence. I've flown all over the world. I've been in everything that would go up in the air I rode on it. And I don't get nervous until the people up front get nervous. When they come out of the captain's booth like (sighs) Immediately, I don't even have to get a report. I don't have to know what's wrong. I just panic. If they're kind of cool, you know, and say, there's going to be a little bit of turbulence, fasten your seatbelt. I say, oh, it's cool. If you have somebody conveying a message with panic and fear and terror, you don't even have to know the details. You just start freaking. <laughs> That's what happens when you hire somebody who has the IQ but doesn't have the EQ to handle the ride who freaks under pressure, who starts screaming at the staff, who starts yelling at the employees, and they just fall apart under pressure. So you wanna make sure they have good IQ, you wanna make sure they have good EQ, but here's the thing that is most important, and there is no test for it. They're AQ, and we never talk about AQ. You've heard people talk about IQ, and you hear people talk about EQ. You don't hear people talk about AQ. AQ is your adaptability quotient. Are you adaptable? How do you respond to change? My class is supposed to deal with the ability to lead people, whether through change, unprecedented growth, or unexpected setbacks. It is the single most important thing that you have to have in order to be an effective leader today. When you hire somebody, or you move into a position, or you open up a company, or you start a business, it's a lot like getting married comes with this big warning and I and my other job that's what I do dearly beloved we are gathered here today to join together into the holiest state of matrimony this man and this woman and we start asking them the questions the real question the question should warn you I know she looks beautiful today and everything is wonderful and he's smelling good he just came from the barber shop and he smells like liniment or something and everything's just great today but do you Take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold." And then we start to get the have and the whole is good. Then it starts getting into the crazy stuff. for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. And you know what we do, we tell you, we say, do you, and you say, I do. <laughs> But you're saying I do to something that you've never seen. Because if you haven't spent time with them, you don't know how they act sick. I could deal with you sick, but I didn't know you got hateful when you got sick. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that when we get broke, you're gonna freak and panic and move out and go back to your mother, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor. And so I'm saying I do to some blank circumstances and I'll spend the next 20 years trying to figure out, do I? that's a lot like going into business and that's a lot like being successful and that's a lot like hiring people. You kind of get some kind of flow and we say, do you? And they say, I do. And then you hire them and and then you think, do you? Because success can be just as daunting as failure is. It can throw you off kilter. If you can't adapt quickly enough to it, you will lose it. You can have more opportunities than you have infrastructure. A blessing isn't a blessing if you can't handle it. So do you have the adaptability in your plan for what you're getting ready to do next? Do you have the ability to adapt to better, worse, rich or poor, sickness, health, going up? If you don't have the expansion joint in your strategy that accommodates winning, you could be praying to win something that you can't handle if you get it. So you have to have that adaptability to be able to transition from one state into the, to the next. And when, when, the, when the thing gets rough and it gets tough, what you need as a leader and as a thinker is not just the success to get there, but the success to stay there, sustainability. Most people in a session like this lack sustainability. You might be chasing after something that you can't run. It's not just about getting there, it's sustainability after you get there. To get here and get invited and get invigorated and get motivated, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna get it, but can you run it after you get it? What gives people comfort in leadership is when there is a commitment to stability in the midst of fluctuations. So, So the whole issue, the only thing that should be stable In your ride to success is you. And if you're not a person who can be stable in the ride, you shouldn't get in the car.
0: And you've been listening to pastor, speaker, and author T.D. Jakes. And from time to time, we just play you a great speech. Because sometimes, well, if it's wise and it's filled with information you can use, well, well, we're doing something for you. And when we come back, we're going to continue with pastor, speaker, and author T.D. Jakes. And by the way, go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org. This reminds me of so many of our great commencement speeches. And that's the only other time we play them. Mostly we do stories. We're periodically hearing a voice like this and just teaching us things that matter in life, that we can all use in life. Well, that's what we try to bring you here with Our American Stories. More with T.D. Jakes after these messages. continue here with Our American Stories and we've been listening to T.D. Jakes talking about leadership and how we learn from failure as much as we do from success. Let's continue with T.D. Jakes.
5: Stability in the midst of fluctuations is quite important. In essence that's what I'm trying to convey to you. So what do you do when it's bad news? the best thing to do with bad news is to deliver a clear accurate concise message a clear accurate concise message clear messaging creates clear expectation which avoids disappointment people can handle bad news if they can trust Your message this is what happened this is how we're going to handle it and we are sorry but if you don't give clear messaging you got to do damage control over and over and over again as people lose their heads and freak out it is not what happens to you that matters it is how you handle it I want to tell you about success strain success strain success creates strain It challenges your ability to grow and to evolve. The very thing that you're here to get is the very thing that's gonna drive you nuts and strain. The strain of winning. The strain of getting more response than you expected. The strain of getting the deal. I got the deal, I got the deal, I got the deal. Can you handle it? When you win, it strains you. Stress is an indicator. It's a benefit, it's a favor it lets you know you're at your limits it does not mean that you cannot do it but it does mean you have to change something anytime there is stress you have to change structure or strategy sure I'm from West Virginia we had a silver bridge in West Virginia the bridge collapsed people died it was a horrible experience and when they did research in it they said the bridge collapsed because of stress That means whoever designed the bridge did not plan for the weight of winning. And I want you to take into serious consideration the weight of winning. Because if you don't, once you get up there, just through the pressure of winning, you you didn't build in the structure and the strategy to handle it and stress is gonna be your warning bell going off at two o'clock in the morning as you're looking out the window in the middle of the night that you need to change. Adding and changing and adaptability of that structure and strategy is is very important. Built-in flexibility for best and worst case scenarios is very, very important. So I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at my life, I'm I'm gonna deal with my life, your life, in two categories one of them I'm gonna call the whirlwind the whirlwind is all the craziness you've got going in your life that demands your attention and it is consistent your whirlwind is all of that stuff that because you're good at doing it you create a whirlwind in your life and then sit on the side of the bed talking about I'm tired you did it to yourself <laughs> because you're a winner you have a whirlwind every winner has a whirlwind managing that whirlwind is important but if you spend a hundred percent of your time managing your whirlwind you don't have time for growth the whirlwind is an issue for one reason it is like a football game you know what the most important feature of a football game is it's not the linebacker. It's not the coach it's it's not who owns it it's not the colors of uniform it's it's, it's not the quarterback it's the clock the clock is the most important feature of the football game because what makes the football game exciting is the clock the clock says you've only got a certain amount of time to do this You know what the whirlwind does not have? It does not have a clock. These are the endless tasks in your life that spend all the time, all the time. You know when you get there, you've got this to do. You know when you get up on Friday, you've got that to do. The whirlwind of issues and problems it takes to make you, you. If you're giving 100% of your time to the whirlwind, you'll never get where you're trying to go. At the most 80%, no more than that. 80% goes to the whirlwind. 20% goes to the wigs. I'm not talking about what you wear in your head. I call them wigs. They are your wildly inspiring goals. Your wildly inspiring goals. If you don't carve out time to think toward and plan toward and strategize your wildly inspiring goals, don't get 10 of them, that's too many. Don't get five, that's too many. At the most, two. And make sure that your goal is worthy of your 20%. A wildly inspiring goal is something that, if you got it, it would change how you deal with the whirlwind. A wildly inspiring goal is worthy of you committing, set, setting aside your time and energy to focus on it. And it's not a goal if it doesn't have a clock. For instance, if you if you say, our goal is to br- provide better service to our customers, that's gonna be a wildly inspiring goal. It's also gonna be an unattainable goal because it is so abstract that you never know when you've done it. But if you take the same goal and say, we are getting uh, report cards back from our customers and our goal is to, by the end of the year to get 70% positive report cards back, now we have a date, And we have an indicator, and it is measurable, and it is quantifiable, and it's going to give you the thing that you need to continue to be creative, the satiety of winning. If you build a life that never says you won, all you're going to end up with is tired. For these wildly inspiring goals, we don't want any more than two of them. We want them to have a date on them, and we want them to be indicators to us that we have completed this so that we can have the celebration feeling of having won the game. When you begin to develop these things, the people up under you need to have them too. Here's the challenge. Make sure their wigs tie into yours. Because if they have a wildly inspiring goal that doesn't tie into your wildly inspiring goals, then you have division. And division leads to destruction. I'm gonna close with this little story. I was in South Africa. And uh, I took my son on a safari. We get out there and I'm out there with the zoologist and the zoologist is, is sitting right beside me, you know, and he's telling me all of the deep things about the lions and the eagles and we're seeing the gazelles running, we're seeing the zebras going, we're seeing everything moving, it's amazing. And it's, he's just telling me all kinds of information. I noticed on the front of the Jeep sitting in a chair that had been bolted down to the Jeep was a Zulu. And the Zulu had a rifle and he was quiet. He didn't say anything the whole time. They kept telling me that the elephants were somewhere around. We couldn't find them. There were footprints of them and the zoologist was telling me about the footprint. It's a female. It's a female. I say it's about five years old or so. All kinds of information, but he couldn't find the elephant. It's getting dark and Dexter's making me look bad because I told Dexter, and my son, we we're going to see the elephants. And he said, Daddy, we still don't see the elephants. I looked at the guy and said, we still don't see the elephant. And he's explaining it and he's describing it, but he can't find it. He is intelligent, but he can't find it. Finally, the Zulu who said nothing the whole time stood up and said, the elephant is over there. All of a sudden, my head exploded because I had I had everything that you need to win I was inspired to take the trip and then I had the intelligence of the zoologist to explain the trip I was on and then the Zulu gave me the instinct to know what intelligence could explain but couldn't find inspiration could inspire it but it couldn't find it intelligence can describe it but it cannot find it ultimately it is always instinct that tests the wind and says the elephant is over there if you take intelligence inspiration and instinct into every strategy you will ever go after no matter the obstacle, the test, the storm, the trial, the tribulation, no matter how many people are against you or the haters who said you can't do it, you can't become it, you can't have it, no matter what your ex husband said about you, if you take these three soldiers with you intellect, oh, instinct, and inspiration you will always achieve your dream. No matter whether things are better or worse, richer. Or poor going up or going down always remember that you would not be stressed or frustrated if you were not close to what you were trying to achieve if you were not close to it you wouldn't have that feeling down in your gut and in your spirit that something is about to happen in your life and if you forget everything else that I said to you today always always remember the elephant is over there.
0: Thank you. (laughs) And you've been listening to T.D. Jakes, and always, we're looking for great speeches. Send your idea of a great one to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We bring once almost every week to you. Again, T.D. Jakes, here on Our American Stories.